the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Every time I looked into something, well, this vaccine prevents polio and polio seems bad. He had a laundry list of sources that were just as strongly convinced that it was dangerous. They look like academic. They look like American Academy Pediatrics papers. They weren't. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 cast. Her lips and nose had turned a little blue. I knew it was bad. I cannot ascribe the level of fear and self-loathing I felt in the 10 minutes it took me to take my daughter to the emergency room. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we explore how people change their minds on a variety of political, cultural, and religious topics. As I said at the end of the last episode, we are in the midst of what is approaching, hopefully, the apex of the pandemic. And scientists are, of course, fervently working to deploy effective treatments and ultimately a vaccine for widespread public use, especially given all of the draconian measures states and local governments have taken to limit personal freedoms in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. People who are already very suspicious of government authority, suspicious of big corporations, big pharma, and just the orthodox practice and uh, expertise of Western medicine. Those people in general are really digging in their heels in anticipation that the government will mandate this new vaccine. And of course, the assumption is that this vaccine is not safe. Texas especially is home to a really large community of anti-vaxxers or uh, vaccine educators, as they prefer to be called, and they are gearing up for a battle, perhaps, hopefully not, a literal one. The arguments are not new, so far as I can tell, but the angst is higher than ever, even after we've just come off significant measles and chickenpox outbreaks, undebatably, because of the lack of vaccinations. So, Vaccines are something that we've covered once before on the podcast, and I will link that episode in the episode description. But in light of the current circumstances, especially, this kind of 180 requires all the more attention, I think. The refusal to vaccinate, it doesn't just endanger the people that you bump into at the grocery store and accidentally cough on or the people you're sitting next to on the bus that you don't know. Most of all, it endangers the people that you love that are closest to you, who you spend the most time with and are in close proximity to. So your your position on vaccines is extremely consequential in terms of how it affects the people around you that you love. Um, So how do people leave the anti-vax community? How do they leave those beliefs? Um, who, Who convinces them to get into things like this? Who and what, you know, 
make somebody oppose vaccines in the first place? What facts, evidence, and maybe experiences convince people to adopt a more science-based and compassionate understanding of vaccines? These are the questions that we're trying to answer. And my next guest here is hopefully going to help us out. She is a professional writer and the editor of The Partnered Pen, a publication for fiction, life lessons, and becoming better writers, and Muddy Um, which publishes humor essays and uh, pop off an outlet for pop culture, including movies and TV. Gwenna Lathlin, thank you so much for joining me on the 180 cast. And did I pronounce your name right? You did. It is. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Before we get started, um, note to the listener, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay updated. We release a new episode every Friday. Well, I try to release an episode every Friday. Sometimes there are technical delays, which push it slightly further into the weekend. But suffice it to say, this is almost always 99% of the time a podcast for the weekend. And uh, every other week I do bi-weekly breakdowns where I talk about news and the, the big issues of our day and uh, try to debunk a little conventional wisdom when it runs up against the facts. So please share the podcast with friends you think might enjoy it. The podcast world is quickly approaching a million podcasts, not just episodes, but actual podcasts. So don't keep your favorites to yourself or your friends will not be able to find them. Today's episode is sponsored once again by MyPillow. To learn more, go to MyPillow.com or call 800-506-2641. More about them in a little bit. All right, moving into the questions. Gwenna, you, you described yourself in this, this essay that I came across on Medium that you wrote last summer. You described yourself as um, an ex-anti-vaxxer. Yeah. And it's, it's always helpful I find to start from the beginning with these kinds of 180s. So what's what's the story here? What made you an anti-vaxxer in the first place or somebody who who um, didn't vaccinate or didn't vaccinate the people closest to you? Like, what's the background? So the background of that is I was uh, 22 years old. I had just gotten married to my first husband and um, we got surprise pregnant and to be perfectly honest, I I hadn't been expecting to get pregnant. I hadn't really considered anything about parenting. And so when all was said and done and it came down to, hey, let's give your daughter some shots, I didn't know what I thought. I didn't know what to think of it. At this time, this was back in 2007, and the anti-vax around Andrew Wakefield, that, that whole movement was really, really gaining steam. And this was before Wakefield had really become disproved how, before the information came out that he'd been uh, lying or bought off or however you want to put it. And my husband at the time was very anti-vax. He was very into conspiracy theories. Um, and so I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. I'd gotten shots as a kid. So when he became vehemently opposed to it, I was like, oh, well, okay. And I, I just didn't put forward any effort to look into it. Every time I looked into something, well, this vaccine prevents polio and polio seems bad. He had a laundry list of sources that were just as strongly convinced that it was dangerous and, and it was governmental control. And I just kind of went, okay. And I went along with it. I just didn't, I didn't think much, much more about it. So these sources, what kind of sources were they? Were they academic papers or were they blog articles by doctors or what? They were a lot of blog articles and they were they were from what we would now call dark web or deep web sources. Mm. Um, so 
there was no real way for me to, they looked normal. They looked like academic. They look like American Academy pediatrics papers. They weren't. Um, they were people's opinions that they had posted and had gone to a lot of effort to, to make it look strongly researched, but it was just opinions. But again, I was young. I was scared. I was confused. And I kind of took the attitude of, well, good enough for me. They look legit. I just didn't confirm anything. Um, I didn't want to fight him either. So what, what happened uh, after that? Uh, well, we ended up getting divorced and I got custody of our daughter and she was about two when she had developed a bit of a cough and that cough went from a bit of a cough to a bad cough and that bad cough went to a terrifying cough one night and I walked into her room and she had just been racking with coughing fits and crying because of them, which started the coughing again. Her lips and nose had turned a little blue. I knew it was bad and decided to go to the emergency room. And the whole time there, I was thinking, oh my God, is this whooping cough? And whooping cough or pertussis is something that you can be vaccinated against. And whooping cough kills children <laughs> when untreated. And it is completely preventable. And I was terrified. I, I mean, I cannot ascribe the level of fear and self-loathing I felt in the 10 minutes it took me to take my daughter to the emergency room because I was quite confident because of my apathy, because of my lack of willingness to go further than what my ex-husband had shown me on these vaccinations and their dangers. I had doomed my child to this terrible, terrible disease. Now I got really lucky we got there. It was an awful case of croup, which is a really common childhood disease for which there is no vaccination. Mm -hmm. And it, they, they get better. Um, and it turned out that my daughter would get an annual bout of croup about every year till she was about five. But that first one was terrifying and bad. I mean, she had to get some, some steroid breathing treatments and a nebulizer, but it wasn't whooping cough. But that you know, day of coughing and walking in to see my daughter lacking oxygen, essentially. And that drive to the hospital was just a horrible, horrible experience that I would not wish on my worst enemy. Thinking the whole time, I let my daughter get sick because I hadn't done anything to prevent it. So from the beginning, when your your baby was an infant, were you going in for the the regular checkups at the pediatrics usually? recommend, you know, like every month and then every six months or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. We, we went in for all those first pediatrician sites, but we were on state care at the time. Uh, I was uninsured. I'd lost my job shortly after she was born, thanks to a layoff. And uh, we didn't have medical insurance. So she was on my state's Medicare system. And as a result, we kind of got placed with whatever doctor took her at the time. Mm -hmm. And every time they'd ask me about vaccines, I'd say, no, thanks. And no one would push it. They, really? they didn't have the time, energy or resources to push it because I was at, I was at a different pediatrician for almost every appointment after her six months. Mm. So and, yeah, I was one I, I was wondering about that, you know, because consistently being confronted with the doctor's. Right. What those conversations look like, but it sounds like there wasn't really any. Right. It was, uh, there, there should have been, sure. I can't necessarily fault the individual doctors that were there, although I now, at my point of belief and, and passion for 
you know, protecting children and the population in general, I, I do raise an eyebrow. Why didn't anybody question me harder? But, you know, we, we were going to clinics. We were going to places that were overtaxed, uh, under-resourced and underpaid for what they were doing and the services they were providing. After uh, your daughter's bout of croup and you having this realization, what did you do what did you do with that um, from there? Did you go research? And- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this was about 2009. And I dove into the internet. By this time, I had, obviously, I'd, I'd left my husband and he and I had issues to begin with. But I had worked really hard to start forming my own opinions. And I dove in. By this time, the information debunking the Wakefield research had come out. And I dove in. I got all of it. I got the anti-vax resources from the anti-vax websites. I got the American Academy of Pediatrics. I got the World Health Organization, the CDC, all of their information. And what I found was a lot of gaping holes and red herring arguments in the anti-vax arguments. Um, could, you, I, could you maybe give us a, a couple of exa- examples of that? Sure. So one of the, one of the, main arguments that I came across a lot was the toxicity levels. These are toxic and they have specific ingredients. Forgive me, I can't remember which ingredient they... Thimerosal, probably. Thimerosal, there it is. That one's just so horribly toxic and it causes autism and it causes all these other horrible diseases. And it didn't take very much Googling as in it was on the first page to figure out most of them don't have that. Those that did had such tiny quantities as a preservative that it can't have a toxic effect. You would have to have 19 doses before you could even have a registerable amount in your system, even as a tiny infant. And yeah, they don't actually cause autism or any of those side effects. That's just complete falsehood. But they kept cycling back. Okay, but they used to have these. Okay, maybe maybe they used to. But the shots that my daughter's about to get or was about to get, she's it's not there. It's it's not an unsafe thing. And to be honest, any risk of side effects that the CDC lists, that the WHO lists, that the pediatrics nutrition's list as possible side effects are far less damaging and frightening than polio and iron lungs and paralysis and mm-hmm. chickenpox. Yeah. So what else did you uncover when you were digging into this stuff? So a lot of it was the thermosol. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot of it was debunking Andrew Wakefield. And I got to say, when when I figured out that he'd essentially been paid off to have these opinions and to publish these uh, as academic researched thought, um, that that was my probably 180 point was realizing, oh my goodness, the the cornerstone of all of these arguments is this one guy who ran the world's tiniest study, which he paid children with candy to say a certain thing. And then Wait, fudged- he literally paid children with candy? Yeah, there 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 was information that uh his his sample uh his, his the group that he tested, um they were young children. There weren't very many. I want to say less than a hundred, which in the scientific community is uh, pretty small. Yeah, a very small sample. And 
he bribed the children who gave answers that he preferred the ones that, that supported his study. Um, he bribed them with candy uh, or treats or something desirable. So they started giving him the answers that supported his preconceived notion, which is not how you do science. No, it is not. <laughs> uh, so were there other people when it, it came out that Wakefield had basically just defrauded the public. Um, were there other people that you saw that were waking up and realizing that they had also been misled on it? Or were were the people who hadn't had a scary um, instance of disease with their child still sort of buried in all of the vaccine, so-called vaccine education talking points? Uh, yeah, they just they found other ways to support their preconceived notions. Um, I wasn't exactly into the anti-vax education. Again, my stance came more from apathy than it did strong emotions against. And so what I found was mostly what my ex-husband presented me. That's the information I had. And what I found when I switched stances was stuff that I researched on my own and used my own brain and reasoning to, to wade through. So when I found the stuff and I, I told a couple of my friends, most of my friends had been secretly judging me for not vaccinating my child in the first place. <laughs> but um, those secretly, that, you say secretly. So they didn't, mm. they didn't broach the subject with you. Uh, one did one, one did. And she got very angry with me. Um, but the rest of my friends were, if they, I don't remember them saying much of anything, but there were some extenuating circumstances surrounding the relationship with my ex-husband as to why they maybe not had said anything. Um, uh, a little bit of live and let live mm -hmm. attitudes and, you know, my, my ex-husband, the the demise of our relationship and, and the, the function of our relationship goes probably beyond the scope of this podcast as to why they, they maybe kept their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me, you might have some insight into this. Um, it's interesting to me how it seems like vaccines are, or the, the anti-vax sort of set of beliefs is connected to other conspiracy theories or realms of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Was that, was that the case? For my ex-husband? Absolutely. Um, he was very much, most of his conspiracy theory revolved around anti-government. Um, he, he was very much a believer that Area 51 was a secret base for something else and that they were exerting mind control on people and, that uh, uh, everything was a out to get you moment for him. Mm -hmm. a a any inconvenience, the stock market fell a little bit. That was government interference. Um, the price of bread went up. That was government interference. That was them exerting control over us and vaccines. These diseases were eradicated a long, long, long time ago and they don't exist anymore. And now all they're doing is pumping us full of, you know, drugs and trials and, things that make us more pliable and susceptible to their influence. Looking back, it sounds really ridiculous, but. But so that's generally the, what people 
perceived to be the motivation of the medical community that with is regard to that's that's one one of them, yeah. them is uh, a modicum of control you can't tell me what to do with my child you can't say that you know better for my child's personal health um one of the common arguments is that's too many shots at once um and you'll see on the internet this picture of this baby doll with all of these needles jammed into it at the same time. This is the number of shots that a child gets in its first two years of life. And while it's technically not untrue, that is the number of vaccines that they get. A, most of them are not administered in single shots. There are several diseases that are all combined into one, uh, things like the Tdap, which is tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. Pertussis is the whooping cough that I was afraid my daughter had contracted. Um, that's three different diseases all in one shot. A lot of times those shots are spaced out. I've now had two more children and they are 19 months old. And the most they have ever gotten in one appointment is three shots and a squirt of a uh, liquid that they swallowed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds, sounds familiar. I have, I have two and that's, yeah, that's the most they've ever gotten. Now they've gotten shots at almost every appointment now, but that's still their 19 months. We're finally coming to the end of our, our big round. The next we'll have to do is just boosters when they get older and then another set of shots when they're about 10 for a couple more diseases like meningitis and human papillomavirus. Hey, it's still me. Before we continue, I want to let you know about our sponsor, MyPillow. My own pillow is a MyPillow, and I can tell you that as the weather warms up, I am even more grateful that I have it. It keeps me cool and comfortable, it supports my neck at exactly the right height, so I do not get neck pain, and the filling is adjustable, so if you bunch it up a little to get just a little bit more height, it stays that way, unlike your dense blocky memory foam pillow, or your down feather pillow, or your cotton filled pancake pillow that you should have thrown out when you left college. Life is too stressful for all of us to skip on the things we need for a good night's sleep. But Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants you to get a good night's sleep even in this stressful time. So for 180 casters like yourself, he is offering the buy one, get one free for the standard MyPillow plus free shipping, which is a great deal. You can get great discounts on all MyPillow products. In fact, on MyPillow.com by clicking on the listeners specials, get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, pillowcases, bed sheets, even towels, and a lot more. MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty, so you are almost certain to have all of your constitutional rights returned to you and be able to leave your house by the time it expires. Right? Right? Then you'll really sleep great. MyPillow is also extending their 60-day money-back guarantee, so orders placed now and the end of April will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through July 1st. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza sheets. They're soft, breathable Egyptian cotton sheets with deep pockets so they don't pop off your mattress plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST or call 800-506-2641 for awesome specials. That is 800-506-2641. Use the promo code 180CAST and let them know we sent you. Okay, now back to it. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people from that belief system, they say, no, these diseases are either totally eradicated, as you said before, or 
they're very, very mild. You know, you just mm-hmm. get some itch, itchy bumps and a, and a cough and then, and then you're over it. And isn't that better than injecting something into your child's bloodstream that you don't fully understand? Because up until the point where you get y- your kids shots and in between getting them shots, what you're putting in their body is things that you understand, right. you know, like bread, broccoli, right. cheese. And, and, it, and it, you know, I can kind of see where it's like, okay, not only are you going to make my child scream in pain and be very grumpy and upset, but you're literally sticking a needle into them full of chemicals that I, I don't understand and that I haven't vetted. And I have these other people telling me that I should be on the safe side and not pump my kid full of chemicals. Like it's kind of a, you know, it's a convincing argument on a certain level. It can be, but a couple things to remember. And I'm speaking here, I know not to you, but to fence sitters, to people who, who are, are kind of caught in the, I don't know realm, because that's where I came from. I didn't know. I didn't know it was in the vaccines. I don't understand how they work. I don't understand what's going on and why we have to give so many shots and why I have to make my child cry and look at me like I have, mortally wounded it because I let this person do it to them. couple things. One of the common arguments I see a lot is the chemicals argument. Oh, well, it's a lot of chemicals. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of chemicals. And the first time your child gets an ear infection, they're going to give it something called penicillin uh, or more likely a man-made version called amoxicillin. Do you know the chemical formula for amoxicillin? I don't. It's a chemical. Let's talk about that broccoli that we're really comfortable feeding our kids. That came from the ground. That's a chemical too. That's actually a whole bunch of chemicals all balled up into one broccoli shaped bundle. Everything we interact with is chemicals. And the anti-vax community is probably more guilty than any other community of, of demonizing the word chemicals. Chemicals are just a part of our life. You and I are nothing but an arrangement of chemicals. Um, we get chemicals from fear. We get chemicals from being happy. Uh, our brain makes them and gives them to us in doses. It's called adrenaline and dopamine. Chemicals. Uh, so a lot of what they wrap up as fear is just misunderstanding. And there's a lot of fear mongering that comes out of the anti-vax community. And it comes right back down to we don't understand Um, And we're not supposed to understand. I didn't go to medical school. I I have hopefully vetted my physician and discovered that he, in fact, did go to medical school and completed all the training and has a good case record of not hurting or purposefully injuring patients. Um, And mine doesn't. My pediatrician is fantastic. And he is really good at explaining things to the best of his ability. But he doesn't need to explain to me the the chemical breakdown of everything. He can't. If I needed that, then it's time for me to, you know, go get my own education. It, if, if I need to know that deep, if I want to go that far, if my brain is wired to need that information, maybe I should have gone to medical school. Maybe I should look at becoming a nurse or a licensed practitioner of medicine. So I we trust our electricians to wire things up appropriately. And sometimes mistakes are made and house fires are started because electrical wiring goes bad. We trust our plumbers to put stuff that isn't going to poison our our water every time we turn on the tap. And we don't tend to question those human beings who 
no shade on electricians or plumbers. They just have far less education than doctors do. We blindly follow what they tell us to do when it's time for professional recommendations, but the entire medical community handling one of the most complex systems known to man, the human body, we want everything to be laid out in crayon on a paper plate so we can boldly and nakedly understand the desire for this is because it's our bodies and it's our children's bodies. I understand that, but we are going to have to learn to trust a little bit. Um, We're going to have to find the right line of questioning. Ask all the questions you need. If your doctor is good, he will answer, he or she will answer every single one of them patiently and as thoroughly as they can. But after you've asked all the questions you can think of, that's where the trust has to come in. Yeah. And these are things that have been studied extensively for a long period of time. By many people. By many, many people with lots and lots of participants in these studies, lots of patients. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think the people who are very uncomfortable um, and really up in arms about the vaccine that's coming for COVID-19, I think they're looking at what's happening now and all of the models they see that are consistently wrong on a, on a daily basis. You know, most of them, most of them have been off the mark and seeing that, you know, there's been guidance from the CDC that, told people, you know, masks aren't, masks aren't necessary. Don't wear a mask and, unless you're sick and you have, you have symptoms. And then they reverse that and they're like, no, actually you should have masks because that's in line with, you know, studies that were done 10, 20 years ago that say, actually, yeah, masks are, are effective to varying degrees. Sure. And they're, and they're probably looking at this and saying, well, look at how much they're wrong. Look at how our experts have misled us. Why should we trust them? When it comes to this vaccine, what would you say to that? Here's the thing about COVID-19 is we haven't seen a virus act like this and be this efficient since 1918. And... 1918, we didn't have great medical science going on. This is, I'm talking about the Spanish flu. And it's really, really difficult to get live information from an ongoing problem. Um, So when they keep changing their recommendations, it's because they're being presented with new information. And I get it. It's confusing. It's frustrating. I feel it too. So do I wear the stupid bandana when I go grocery shopping or not? I don't. Mm -hmm. I get it. I completely understand. But when the same people come out and say, okay, we have trialed this, we have run it through its paces, and this is going to help prevent you from getting COVID-19. I'm going to take it. I'm going to get my whole family to get it as soon as we can safely and efficiently. It's the same with the flu vaccine. We get it every year. Have I gotten the flu on the flu vaccine? Yes. Does it mean that the flu vaccine is a sham? No, (laughs) no, it doesn't. The flu vaccine has helped my body build the antibodies, which is what helps fight off the virus helps my body build the antibodies. But the flu, just like COVID-19, which is something called the coronavirus, which is a a germ relative of the influenza virus, Mm -hmm. um, 
there are many, many, many different arrangements that you can have. It's not a puzzle that once you get all the pieces together, it paints one picture. It's an infinite puzzle and all the pieces are the same color. So just because you got a snapshot of one section of that puzzle done doesn't mean that there aren't more pieces that can tail on to the end. Viruses can evolve. Viruses can change. They develop the vaccines based on the information they have. And they try to get really close. They even try to guess at how that virus is going to grow and evolve and change and affect us in new ways. And they build a vaccine and try to teach my body with that vaccine how to fight this disease, how to prevent myself from getting sick. Sometimes they hit it. Sometimes they don't. So rapidly changing information is going to be a thing. And it sucks and it's confusing. But again, I go back to that. We're going to have to trust them because we are not virologists. We are not clinical researchers. If you are a virologist and a clinical research, you probably agree with me anyway. <laughs> um, speaking of antibodies and going back to other diseases that that have been endemic and that we have vaccines for and know a lot about a lot about like the lowering the um, the plunging vaccine rates, particularly in some communities like in, in Southern California, you've seen there's like a direct um, relationship with the number, uh, lo and behold, the number of people <laughs> that get chicken pox or, right. or get measles or, or even mumps. Um, so with the herd immunity argument, how would you broach a subject with somebody who's hesitant about, about vaccines and and uses the talking point like we mentioned earlier about, you know, nobody gets these diseases anymore. Um, sure. How do you talk to somebody about herd immunity? Because it's one of those things where, you know, like we also talked about being focused on what's right in front of us mm -hmm. um, and, and that possibility or not possibility of having pain. Whereas like herd immunity is something that is more of a society thing and thinking about other people. So how do you, um, how do you talk to people about that? Sure. Well, first herdy from the anti-vaxxer standpoint is wildly misunderstood. Herd immunity is not that we have developed herd immunity because so few people have gotten measles or mumps or rubella in the past X number of years or decades. Herd immunity is most of us, because we were vaccinated, and this is speaking on the theoretic level, most of us were vaccinated, therefore cannot carry or be infected with measles, mumps, or rubella, which is something that's treated with a shot called the MMR. We all got our MMR, we got all the rounds, and we got all the boosters. So theoretically, we cannot get measles, mumps, and rubella. And if on the off chance that we do get an infection, it is going to be very mild and likely not deadly because our system has been trained how to deal with this particular virus. That's what the antibodies do. That's what vaccines do for us. Herd immunity means that because all the rest of us have, my mother-in-law who has lupus and cannot be vaccinated for MMR, she's also protected because I, I can't get it. I can't bring it over to her house. If your child was immunocompromised, say they had leukemia and were unable to get the treatment, I'm still protecting your child who is dealing with a completely different disease from getting this really deadly thing, more deadly for them because they're immunocompromised. So what exists if their immune system couldn't handle even a low key infection? 
That's how herd immunity is supposed to work. But the term has become very, very conflated of, well, the herd is immune, so I don't have to get it. No, if we stop vaccinating the herd, eventually we run out of herd people, herd elements that are immune. And that's what we're seeing in California. That's what we're seeing in New York. That's what we're seeing in Montana, where large populations of the herd are no longer vaccinated because people think herd immunity works this way. But now we're beginning to see those diseases, which still very much existed. The vaccines didn't destroy the germ that causes measles, mumps, and rubella. It just taught our bodies how to fight it properly. It's like going to karate and then stumbling into ninjas. Now you know how to fight ninjas because you went to karate, which is, I'm sure, half your you know, podcast listeners were like, that's not what karate <laughs> is. <laughs> I'm sorry probably a poor analogy, but you get it. So now we're starting to pick off bits of the herd that are no longer immune. And here's the other thing about a lot of these diseases, and this is true for COVID-19 as well. You can be a carrier. If your body can carry the disease, which mine can't, I can't get measles, mumps, and rubella, or if I do, it's going to be a very, very light case because I taught my body how to fight that. I took germ karate with my vaccines. Um, I've taught my children the same thing. They took germ karate. So COVID-19, you can, you can be a carrier, which means I'm carrying around this disease and I can share it with other people and never, ever, ever know that I had it because I am asymptomatic. I'm not sick, or at least I don't feel sick. I'm just carrying around this germ like it's in my purse. So yeah, it's it's e even more important to to have that herd immunity right. because of all of the asymptomatic people. Right. So yeah, you can't stop vaccinating the herd and then expect herd immunity to stay still. Herd immunity is to protect those who cannot, for valid medical reasons, be vaccinated. It's to protect those newborns, which everybody loves a squishy, scrunchy, wiggly newborn. They cannot be vaccinated for the first three months of their life. That's the first time you can get vaccinated is at three months. That's the first time their little immune systems are strong enough to begin to learn the antibodies we introduce with the vaccines. So it drives me nuts when people are like, oh, herd immunity. Okay, but every time you don't vaccinate a child who can safely be vaccinated, you're risking all those precious, beautiful little newborns. You're so invested in protecting because they have none. Their mom's antibodies are gone within about a week or two. And they can't have more protection until three months old. And even then, that's not for all of it because you have to get to a certain point. That's why there's a schedule. Right. And, and, and I think what this pandemic is also teaching us is that even if you're in a community, let's say, you know, you're up here in Washington where there's fairly high levels of vaccination and you think, I don't have to get, I don't, I don't need to get a vaccine because all of the people around me are protecting me from this. Mm -hmm. They've already, you know, they've taken on the, the supposed risk of adverse reaction. So, so I don't have to do that, but because we're, like a global economy and we have people moving across the world every single hour of every day. It's like it, at any point in time, somebody with mumps or the measles could come by and in, infect you. Like the measles is very, very 
infectious. Right. Like those little those little aerosol particles travel a long way and can stay in rooms and affect people for like infect people for like hours after that that person has left. Right. You know, much more much more contagious than well and there's also things to be concerned with about incubation periods so especially with measles you're actually sick for a long time before you ever get symptoms so even if you do develop the full rash and the fever and the aches you're sick and can spread measles for a couple days before you realize you're sick before there's even cause to go to the doctor because you feel terrible you were sick and spreading that around yeah it's, I mean, this, this pandemic, I think is, I, I do wonder how it's going to shake out everything in terms of the, how people, especially the vaccine hesitant and the anti-vaxxers um, perceive disease and the threat of disease, because yeah. probably we're going to get to a point where everybody knows somebody who has died of COVID or knows somebody who, who has a relative or right. a loved one that that died of COVID-19. It's like very very present like there's no there's no real escaping it. And and it kind of makes me me wonder when your first child came down with this awful awful cough um that scared you so much. Do you think you would have done a 180 on vaccines and gone and done all of that research if she hadn't gotten croup? Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult question to ask because she was pretty young. I mean, like I said, she was, she was a little over two when she first got that, that really scary case of croup. Would I have done a 180 had she not fallen ill and essentially scared me straight? Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. Because eventually I, I learned a little more. I got her into a, a regular pediatrician and First of all, props to my pediatrician. He will not see children uh, beyond the first initial visit if they're, uh, their parents are anti-vax. He will treat them for what they came in for, and he will give them the full length and breadth of his care. But after that, he will not welcome them as a patient because he does not support the anti-vaxxer movement. He will give them a list of physicians who will treat them. Um, but... I wouldn't have been able to go see our fantastic pediatrician had I not changed that school probably would have forced me to uh, do some soul searching and some research on my own because our, in our area, public schools require either a waiver, which is a little bit of a pain in the beep to get processed or their shot records. And it, it's the path of least resistance, honestly, to just go get the shots because even if they're delayed, in the state of Oklahoma, where I live, even if you're delayed, as long as you are on track and a pediatrician says, yep, this person has agreed to continue with the shots, then they'll let you into school, which mine was handled well before my eldest daughter got to school. But yeah, I probably still would have done a 180. Um, not to sound demeaning, but because I do have a functioning brain capable of asking questions and learning. <laughs> <laughs> Most right. well, people critical do. thinking, uh, you know, critical thinking, uh, I, the more I live and the more I, I write and the more I read, the more I find how rare that actually is. <laughs> I had somebody, you know, I wrote an article today and I had somebody say something that was like, said I said that I myself was a conspiracy theorist. I'm like, oh, yeah, those conspiracy theories that are peddled by NPR and 
the New York Times that I I quoted in that article. Yeah, that's... you you really got me there. You you found me out. Those <laughs> silly academics. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's I don't think it's yeah it's not it's not to to knock anybody or right. or say that everybody's stupid except me and Gwena, no. but um, it's it, it is to a certain extent something that has to be taught you know sure. you kind of have to teach people how to think how to ask and not questions just what to think. that's something yeah. that all of my ch- my youngest don't really speak yet they're pre-verbal but my oldest hates hates it but in our house is ask good questions and if you don't understand ask better questions that's something that i think everybody there's no such thing as a stupid question um there really isn't um, the only stupid question is that which is unasked. If you don't understand about the preservatives, ask your physician about the preservatives. If you don't understand about the possible side effects, ask your physician about the possible side effects. They'll be straight with you. And if they're not, find a new physician. Um, you can always ask for a second opinion. I don't know why you would um, on vaccines, but you can. You have that right. You have that prerogative. They get to help you understand to the point that you are satisfied. Again, I reference there does have to come at some point a level of trust that they've given you all the information you could possibly process and maybe a little more. But yeah, speaking of of trust, though, given that the public has been asked for much, much, much more than just getting the vaccine when it comes out that, you know, I'm in Washington state, I'm under complete lockdown, stay at home orders unless I'm going to the grocery Mm -hmm. store. Like that's, that's like literally all I can do. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't have Easter church services or, or anything like people are being asked to do a lot and given, you know, like we talked about that because of the, the changing information and, you know, models are only as, as good as the assumptions that are made mm-hmm. and the data that is, that is input and things like that. You know, do you think that that's going to make people who are already suspicious even more suspicious about this vaccine that's coming out because that plays into, you know, what you were saying earlier that your husband believed that ex-husband, the government is ex, ex, exactly yes. <laughs> that, the, <laughs> sorry, that the government um your husband at the time that, that the government is sort of out to get mm-hmm. you and, and does not have your, your best interest at heart. So what do you tell people in this current environment you know, like somebody who's who's suffering under one of these lockdown orders and might be a childless single millennial who is literally going to be at home for like three or four months. Sure. You know, what do you tell what do you tell that person who's probably already gone down the rabbit hole of like, you know, QAnon and and all of, you know, mm-hmm. and Area 51 and all of those other conspiracy theories that are are prone to latch on to people of that demographic yeah. that are already lonely. I know I'm like, I'm getting super, deep this <laughs> but it's because I know people who are kind of in this circumstance. Um, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you tell them? Because they see what's right in front of them and what's right in front of them is like, all my rights are taken away. Sure. And my, my current husband and I have had this, this is my current, like I'm, I'm just collecting them now. My husband <laughs> and I have had this, uh, this conversation before is people who are left alone into their own devices find themselves in really weird places, especially those who were just learning those critical thinking skills that we were just talking about. Um, 
you end up asking weird questions and then not knowing who to go to for answers. So for those people who are potentially facing thinking about vaccinations for the first time because they don't have children um, either yet or intend to ever, or their children are long grown and this isn't something they had to think of. And now they're looking at this. They've never gotten the flu vaccine and that's fine. Whatever. I never get the flu. I'm healthy. You're lucky is what you are and probably healthy too. But for this, you have to understand who your sources are. Where are you getting this information? Who has written this? What studies did they reference? Where did they get their information? Where did those people get their information? Because so much of the anti-vax material, so much of the conspiracy theory is tertiary and quaternary sources. I heard from a guy who worked at the thing whose cousin was also a person like this. And that is not a good source. That's not, that's not a good, that's a good place for opinion. Sure. But in this case, we need to work in the realm of facts. You have to determine who you trust. And with the anti-vax groups and with the, the conspiracy theorists in general, there are, there's, there's a strong line drawn in the sand. Those who are quite thoroughly and forever convinced that they are correct and that all of the, what I would call credible sources like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control, they are wrong. They are lying. They are the mouthpieces of whatever power that exists to control us or make us sick or whatever their theory is. They will never be trusted. Ah. To those people, I wish you luck and you're welcome for protecting you with my herd immunity. Okay. Um, it's the other, the people on the other side of that line, the people who are fence sitters, who are working out of fear and not understanding and frustration, especially with COVID-19. It is very frustrating. Again, information keeps changing. Recommendations don't seem to make sense. And it's different from day to day. Um, We're only going to be locked down till April. And now it's till May. And now the president is intimating it might be even longer than that. I get it. But when you're in your apartment, lonely, bored, and waiting for your turn to go to the grocery store because you ate the last of your Twizzlers again, you have to ask yourself, where are these sources coming from? Who do I trust? And if you cannot trust the agencies that have been right about other stuff that have had really sound recommendations that you have to remember are the ones advising all of these lockdowns. They're the ones saying to prevent the spread of this disease, wash your hands for at least 20 seconds, use masks when you go out into public to protect yourself and others. and stay home unless you have to go out. That's coming from the CDC. That's coming from the World Health Organization. That's coming from all of the medical communities, all of the various academies and colleges and meetings of very powerful, educated, well-thought minds. Right. Well, even, even very, um, even very not conspiratorial people, very mainstream people, Mm -hmm. Are, are questioning. And I think this is going to be something that people latch onto and take even farther than what the evidence allows us, but that the World Health Organization um, is, is uh, heavily funded by the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party um, 
has lied to us about this yeah. disease. And so people are like, okay, well, now everything that the World Health Organization tells me is suspect because they lied to us. At, you know, they told us for weeks that it, was, it wasn't trans, transmissible between uh, person to person, that it was only people getting it from animals. And then they said, you have nothing to worry about. Just wash your hands, go about your life. And, and, and you know, now look at the situation sure. that, that we've been put in and people saying, like, just throwing up their hands and saying, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't trust you. Of course, the World Health Organization is only one authority. Right. This, which yeah. Is- yeah. That that does make sense. Again, we're in the thick of it. And so you have a nine month old, right? When you were days from having this child in whatever manner you had this child, if someone had asked you, would you do this again? What would your answer be? You would do it again. You you would you would put yourself all the way through that one more time, days. Yeah, and I was I was sick the whole time. Okay, so yeah. okay, <laughs> so you were able to give a rational answer in the middle of it. If you were, I I'll switch to me. If you had asked me days before I gave birth to my twins, would I do this again? My answer would have been no, with several expletives on either side of that word. Um. Looking back on it now, I can get a rational answer, and that still matches, sure. But when you're when you're in the middle of something that is confusing and scary and hard, it is sometimes and often difficult to give a rational answer. We're in the middle of, for all of us, an unprecedented reaction. Is it an overreaction? I can't really tell. I I mean, I'm with a lot of the people in a lot of these boats that are just floating off. Like, is this too much? Is this doing anything? Where is the correct answer? We don't know. But do know is there are still people not uh, abiding by the recommendations. And in those areas, like Florida, for instance, who allowed spring break and all of its activities to continue, their numbers just skyrocketed. They're off the charts as far as how quickly it spread in an area that didn't. My area is actually kind kind of doing well. We don't have, we just topped 5,000 cases not too long ago. Um, but that's really, really good for our population of around 3 million. Um, because right and it's and it's very unfortunate in 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 Florida because there's such a high retirement right. population and they're very vulnerable. Right. And when the recommendations weren't followed or in areas where they couldn't be or weren't enforced, we are seeing higher numbers. So that's where we have to go back to the data and our own common sense. So these recommendations weren't enforced here and they have higher numbers. Um Places like LA and New York City, which do have really high infection rates, people aren't washing their hands appropriately. People aren't able to take the proper precautions and they live so close to each other, right on top of each other. Um, They have higher number of cases. So if you don't, if you can't, if you're struggling to trust the authorities in which a lot of people do trust, then just look at the numbers for yourself. And, And you'll have to extrapolate a little bit of information it's potential. It's deadly. It's got a, about an 8% kill rate, which is really high for a virus. Yeah. I mean, out of, out of a confirmed, out of confirmed. Cases. Sure. Sure. 
And and that that always has a margin of error. Um, I, I've already seen stories popping up. Well, my husband actually died of a heart attack, but they listed him as a coronavirus because he had coronavirus, but that's not what killed him. All right, then you're within the plus or minus. You're within that plus or minus X number of, of what's, what's called a margin of error. No statistic is ever 100% accurate. It's how statistics work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Statistics aren't raw numbers. Right. If they were raw numbers, you'd just call them raw numbers. Raw numbers but... <laughs> right, right, right. But that, you know, that's just one one more example sure. of the, the critical thinking that we were talking about is, okay, so it's 8% out of the confirmed, the confirmed cases. Well, who's being tested for the cases? Right. Are they symptomatic? How many people in, in other studies or where people have looked at other areas, mm-hmm. you know, how many people are asymptomatic? And then you kind of sort of have to like, read between the lines and and estimate a little bit. Um, But at the same time, it's like you can say this is 8% of confirmed cases and that statistic is in itself correct. It's how you interpret it that matters. Right. And and compare it to others, you know, H1N1, it had about a 3% death rate of confirmed cases. And that was over a much longer time period that it took to to kill 3% of confirmed infected humans. Um, Mm -hmm. So 8% statistically is a high death ratio. And that's frightening. Um, Which makes you dive even further into this paranoia realm. Because again, like you said, we're all stuck at home. We don't have anything better to do. And I'm starting to run out of Netflix. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Conspiracy theories are very entertaining. Um, I mean, truly. And and if you go on YouTube, oh my goodness, don't, (laughs) don't, don't even. It's, it's, it 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 really sucks people in. Like sure. people say that they fall down rabbit holes, and I I feel like that is more literal than even they think right. it is. Like you literally you literally fall down a hole. But before we fall down a, another <laughs> hole with this podcast, I feel like that's probably a good place a good place to wrap it up. Um, thank you, Gwena, so much for for joining me today. This is a really good. Conversation. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed myself. You can follow Gwenna's writing by searching Gwenna Lathlin, L-I, oh, sorry, L-A-I-T-H-L-A-N-D on Medium and clicking follow and also check out the Medium publications that she's editing, including Muddyum, Popoff, and Partnered Pen. There's a very es- funny essay that I uh, found on Muddyum about body language in the age of masks. I thought it was really, really funny. Um, I will, if I remember, I will link it in the episode description so you can have a laugh. Call or text the flip phone if you have thoughts on this episode and you want to flip out or try to flip my position. Call 323-999-1802 and leave me a voicemail or text. 323-999-1802. And of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Please consider giving the podcast a review on iTunes if you you like it, that really does help uh, get this second year of the podcast um, started out on, on good footing and getting more people joining our little 180 caster community. And you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, where I speak my mind on a variety of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. I am not a conspiracy theorist, I promise. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, though, let me see. What I need
naked who I've got in the middle of the struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need. Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.